We have a lot of beautiful traditions and things we're trying in this series, including the blessing cards you all filled out. Thank you for doing that. I know if maybe you're visiting or new to the space, you're like, what's happening? What are we doing? There's a lot going on. Thank you, though. And um, we'd love to have you drop those um, cards in the back as you've listed the people who you have been courageously blessing through the week. And I just want to say, when I walked around the room even handing out the cards, I see so many people in this room that have blessed me this week. So thank you for the work that you're doing to bless one another in Jesus' name. One of the other um, things that we're doing together in practice is hearing the scriptures for the week read from different members of our community. So I'm going to invite Diana, who will be reading our text this morning out of John 13 for us. We're in what is called this upper room discourse um, with the action that happens right before um, Jesus is arrested um, and goes into his passion before um, Easter Sunday. So I'm going to let Diane read the word for us this morning as we listen. Good morning. This is the word of the Lord from John 13, starting with verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Peter, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. Mm. Do you love how that ends? Do you understand? Like a little, thank you, Diane. That was perfect. When I was growing up uh, as, as a young child in my home, we had this uh, little child-sized chair, it's a bright red chair, and it was also the timeout chair. Um, it was at the kind of on the second floor landing of our home, and apparently I spent a fair amount of time in this little red chair. Uh, and my parents um, said that one day after they had sent me up the steps, it was ominously quiet for a while before there was a loud crash, and they came to see what had happened. And at the bottom of the steps, there was the red chair, I'm in many pieces, and I was standing smugly at the top of the stairs and said, no more time out. <laughs> uh, you see, I was apparently under the illusion, which I feel like is very strategic uh, in some ways, but I was under the illusion that if I could just rid us of this dastardly red chair, the timeouts would go away. Of course, my parents were more wily than that, and it did not happen. Um, but, you know, I was under this illusion. Now, as I grew up, I like to think my illusions became more sophisticated. So, um, at elementary school, I remember coming to the sad realization that really the household of my parents and what they could offer me as a, as a human being had really come to its end, and it was time for me to strike out on my own in the world. And so I packed up my Care Bear backpack with graham crackers and scrunchies, some stuffed animals, and I started the trek, you know, my quest to the future down the long driveway. 
Um, and I made it about to the end of the driveway before I'd eaten all the graham crackers and realized I would need to ask my neighbor to stay at her house for a while till I regrouped and figured out my next steps in my plan. Um, the illusions continue, right? In college, I was under the illusion that I didn't really need to sleep to be a human um, and could eat anything I wanted without real impact. I was kind of proud I'd, I'd had my first academically driven all-nighter as a sixth grader. Um, and so in college, when I was like 24, 48, 72 hours with no sleep, I was like, child's play. And I really worked hard to prove the point that people could live on Papa John's and midnight cookie deliveries indefinitely. As I became an adult, I started following Jesus in those college years. And as I moved into my life following Jesus, I was under a more dangerous illusion, I began to realize. You see, there was part of me that believed that life was kind of like this cosmic relay, where once I had kind of received the baton of grace from Jesus and accepted Christ, that I was like, hey, I got this from here. I'm good. And it's interesting, our confusion and illusions about uh, self-sufficiency, they're kind of understandable though, right? Because they, from the youngest ages in our lives, um, we are encouraged to be independent and autonomous, right? Like, this happens all the time. Um, we, we are celebrated. We say, oh, you did it all by yourself. What a big girl, Kathy. Right? I'm like, yes, I did. Right? And I did this with, in my own parenting. Like, the minute that my kids could, you know, go to the bathroom by themselves or zip their own coat or toast their own egos, like, we affirmed them like crazy. Right? We're like, yes, you got this. Because it was like every little step, I got a little bit of my own life back. We're like, yeah, you got it. Then, of course, one day you come home and they're, you know, trying to fry chicken in a huge vat of hot grease or operating power tools with no supervision. And you're like, no, you don't got it. <laughs> but it's confusing, right? These conflicting values. Working with InterVarsity, I hire uh, staff and campus ministers, and I'm looking for qualities that so many other employers look for too, right? I'm like, are they a self-starter? Can they take initiative? How do they handle having more to do than time to do it? And with resilience and grit. Like, good things, good qualities. And that's all kind of exacerbated sometimes by these unspoken unwritten cultural norms and values that we carry, right? And it gets confusing because we hold those values, many of which are helpful around self-sufficiency to us, you know, maturing as humans, but it can be confusing as we hold them alongside the mystery in this teaching of Scripture that actually our spiritual maturation is marked by humility, by dependence, and by an honesty about our profound frailty. And so last week, Tom launched this series that we're in around confession during the season of Lent, the lengthening of days leading up to Easter. And I appreciate Tom called us to think about the, the importance of a whole um, and a holistic approach 
in obedience to the word, where we are a people invited to a place of contrition first, a sorrow for our sin, but that we also then in obedience confess our sin to God and to one another, and that takes us to a place of willing surrender, right? And then we are a people, and I love how he said this, who have heads that bow and knees that bend. Isn't that great? Heads that bow and knees that bend. So in this season of Lent, we're practicing the spiritual discipline of confession. Um, Think confession with a lowercase c. And that's going to lead us up to Easter, when we as the people of God make a capital C confession that Jesus is the risen king. but it's not easy, right? Confession is not a spiritual practice that comes particularly easy to us. And and Tom talked about that a little bit and the implications that there's a temptation both at the individual and at the group level for kind of empire building, right? We, We have an interest, and this is sin is oldest time, right? But in making a name for ourselves, in guarding our reputation, in gathering and holding on to power and influence and wealth, et cetera. But in doing so, we then end up holding and withholding parts of ourselves from God and denying the ultimate authority of our God. We might acknowledge some of the little things here and there. There's a great uh, quote by a French writer that says, we only confess our little faults to persuade people that we don't really have any big ones. I was like, oh, yes, I have done that. Little um, art of uh, diversionary tactic. But the reality is that we're inviting all of us and I'm being invited to say, where have I withheld or held back from God? And to name and acknowledge the places of sin. So there's the sentence that we can come back to week after week to name these things in community. I have withheld fill in the blank from you, God. I've withheld this from you in pursuit of my own empire. And so I confess this to you. And today we're talking about the temptation to the illusion of self-sufficiency. And so I might say, Lord, I've withheld my most honest needs from you in pursuit of my own empire. And so I confess that I've believed in the illusion of self-sufficiency. I confess that to you. I grew up in a tradition where we prayed um, a corporate confessional prayer. It's common across multiple traditions. It's a beautiful prayer that I really didn't realize the beauty of it till I looked back on my earlier life. And it starts like this. It reads, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we've left undone. This might sound familiar to some of us, right? We've not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. 
And in the tradition that I grew up in, the next line was actually, for the sake of your son. But as I was looking at other full renderings of this prayer, there's a line in there I realized we had cut growing up. So on the next slide, you'll see it. The next line in this corporate prayer says, we're truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus. And I was like, what? That's really interesting. Like, why did we leave that out? And I, I could see it being something related to, you know, we, we want it to be genuine, so you don't just want to read those words. You know, you can't manufacture contrition or feeling sorry. So I, I could see that. But part of me is like, is it just hard? You know, it's easy for me to gloss over actually saying sorry, whether it's to my kids, my husband, someone in this room, the Lord. But that sets up, right? We are truly sorry. We repent. And for the sake of your son, have mercy and forgive. It's hard. And when I think about self-sufficiency in particular, and I look at all of the illusions I had about my own self-sufficiency, finding my own way through the things of life, I'm still doing it. It just looks different. So actually, I, would you go with me to prayer? I want to confess this right now. Um, would you pray with me? Lord, I do confess that I have held this illusion, and yet the reality is every breath is a gift. I don't make the air I breathe. It is a gift from you. Lord, thank you that in these weeks we are learning and asking for you to shine a light to expose us, to bring to our understanding hidden things that we would confess them. Search us and know us, as the psalmist says. I'm sorry. For the sake of you, Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on us that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Thanks. Let's go to the text that Diane so beautifully read for us, and let's see what else we can learn here in this story. If you'd like to follow along, we're in John 13. You can pull it up on your device. There are Bibles in the back. If you want to grab one, jump up and grab one. You're welcome to do that. And I, I loved it in this story, in the stories of this week. We, we're going to have real people to look at and relate to and connect with um, in this learning. And so I actually was thinking coming in about how one of the ways that I learn, we learn in different ways, is I'm also a, a visual learner. And I really appreciate when people help me to see new dimension of scriptural stories. And one of the ways that that happens is often through um, art and imagery. And there's a painting that I, I wanna have up as we're looking in this text. Um, and it's a painting from the mid-19th century by Ford Maddox Brown. It's called Jesus Washing Peter's Feet. So Preston, if I could have that art piece, and you can kind of see this on the screen as we talk through this story. What I love about this painting is um, especially look at the faces as best you can see of the different people in the scene. It's an incredible capture of the tension 
and the awkwardness and the strong feelings in this scene and in this room. And I want us to hold that in mind because really this whole scene um, that's about to unfold is incredibly tense and awkward. And you don't always get it when you just kind of gloss over things. Um, first of all, there's all these unnamed realities. Um, when we see um, in text or we even look at an image, you don't get all the full dimension, you know, the smells and the sounds and what's happening in the room. But I want you to think for a minute, they're, they're having this meal together um, on the brink of everything changing in their lives. And it says they're eating, but it also says that they're unwashed. So I want you to think, um, the, the folks would kind of lounge at a lower table, often against pillows, and their feet would be in sandals and, and probably somewhat exposed. And so as they're eating, the smells of their dirty feet and the excrement they've walked through and the dirt and the filth, all of that would have been also rising in the room. And it's a little awkward because typically you would actually wash before you eat. So something, it didn't happen for some reason. Whether the, the person normally assigned that very menial and lowly task wasn't there, wasn't available, we don't know why, but we know it didn't happen. And it's interesting because we also know, like all the disciples, it would have been their honor to wash their rabbi Jesus' feet. But you notice none of them had done that? Because you see, if they, if they had washed their rabbi's feet, they might have been compelled to wash all of their fellow disciples' feet, and no one was willing to stoop that low in the room. Mm -mm. And so in that moment, they're eating, and as the stink of their pride is literally rising in the room, Jesus makes an incredible move. In John 13 in the part leading up to our text. When you study this, you see John captures a detailed account. It says first in verse four that Jesus rose from supper, from that meal, a place of comfort and ease, just as he rose from the throne in heaven, a place of rest and comfort. And then it says Jesus laid aside his garments, taking off his covering just as he laid aside the covering of his heavenly home and place of longing, laying aside his very glory. And he takes a towel and he wraps it around himself just as he took on flesh and came to serve among us. And then it says he pours water out in the basin just as he is about to pour out his very blood for the cleansing from guilt and sin of the world. And it is in the midst of this beautiful, shocking, living parable that Peter has the gall to say no. No. Verse six says, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? Jesus says, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And Peter says, no, you will never wash my feet. And look at the picture. 
Peter's in the foreground. Do you see his posture? His hands are clenched. I imagine that jawline under that beard. He is holding his fate. He's scowling in the horror, his resistance to this moment. And look in the background, the clenched hands, the disciple with his head in his hands, they can't even make eye contact. They're horrified that this is even happening. And in fact, the only disciple who seems unfazed is, if, as you look, is on the left, there's one disciple you see bending over, untying his sandal. And the clue that this is Judas is that little bag, that white bag on the table, indicating the 30 silver pieces. Only Judas seems ready to get his feet washed and unfazed by the horror of this moment. But Peter says, no, you'll never wash my feet. No, Jesus, I got this. But what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You see that in verse 8? Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You see, there's two things, two key things that Jesus was teaching them, was embodying and demonstrating in this moment. First of all, there is no full and utter cleansing health, life, that comes apart from Jesus. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Only Jesus. Right? And it's a once and for all, there's no other way. John writes about it elsewhere in his gospel, right? As he captures the word of Jesus, who, who, when he says, I am the way, the truth, the life, there is no other. And he embodies the reality of this good news in his actions, and on some level, Peter seems to get that. He seems to be tracking to some extent, and he wants it. And so then he turns and he says, well, um, then Lord, not, not just my, my feet, but uh, my hands and my head as well. And in verse 10, Jesus answers, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And Peter, you're clean. Well, not every one of you, right? He's referring to Jesus or to Judas, right? He says he knew who was going to betray him. And Judas will be in good company with those around this table that will say no. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying, first of all, you need to know that there is a, a soul-level cleansing that happens, that I'm about to go to the cross and be raised from the dead to accomplish once and for all. But there's a second reality. The reality is he knows that actually just like the muck and filth on their feet that they've still carried into this room, that even with a deep, full soul cleansing that Jesus offers, there's a way we walk through life and we still pick up the filth and the muck and the smell and the stuff of life, right? And so what Jesus says next to these disciples is wash one another's feet, right? I'm demonstrating and embodying a humility and an act of profound service that I want you to live out in the life of the people of God too, right? Because humility admits that we still have stuff. And humility also acknowledges 
and then receives the confession of one another and points to that once and for all cleansing of Jesus who has the authority to forgive sin. You see, confession ultimately is a prescription for our health. And I want us to be thinking about that in the season of Lent, right? Less of uh, the command to be obeyed, a duty to be fulfilled, but it's really this prescription for us to be well. Like so many of the commands in Scripture, it's for our good. You know, look at the, like if you think of it like a medicine, like look at their faces. This is not tasty stuff. Like this is hard. He's messing with their paradigms. And sometimes that invitation to confessional living with each other is like, no, I don't, I don't want that. No, thanks. But friends, we'll get healthy. We'll feel better. It's for our good. Even if it doesn't taste good going down. It is a prescription for our health. And like Peter, in our temptation to pride, to self-sufficiency, we say, "Um, no, Jesus, you've done a good thing. Pass that baton. I've got it from here. We've got this. It's the story from Eden to Israel to the upper room to right now. But when we confess our sin, when we just tell the truth, when we let go of the illusions, right? We say, we need you, Jesus. That's good medicine. And unless I wash you, Jesus says, you have no part with me. We want to be with Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team up as we prepare to have a time to respond and consider how self-sufficiency and the illusion of being able to do it on our own affects us. I, I really like the way um, that Parker Palmer talks about it. He wrote a book, I mean, it's really directed at spiritual leaders, and he talks about this temptation to self-sufficiency and describes it as functional atheism, which I was like, oh, that's really striking to me. You know, this like, I say I believe in God, but I really live like there is no God. And this quote, uh, he describes it as kind of a, a third shadow among spiritual leaders. And, and he says, functional atheism is the belief that ultimate responsibility for everything rests with us. This is the often unconscious, unexamined conviction that if anything decent's going to happen here, whatever the situation is, anything decent's going to happen, we're the ones who have to make it happen. And it's a conviction held even by people who talk a good talk about God. Personally, I find this very convicting. Because when I kind of run with things, step up, take initiative, I continue to be applauded. I often pat myself on the back. But does it mean I'm living like there really isn't a God? This is the trap, right? So I want us to think, where does that illusion of self-sufficiency infect our lives? What are the areas of life we're tempted to act in ways that say, nope, Jesus, we'll hold him at arm's length and say, I got it from here. This one's mine. I got this. 
And so through these weeks, we're asking reflectively the, these two questions, twin questions, right? What must I confess? And did I bless, right? So we started our service saying, did I live a life of intentional blessing? And we're also asking, Lord, what do I need to just tell the truth about? And today I want to challenge you to think, where are the places where you're tempted to that way of self-sufficiency? Of saying, if anything's going to happen, it's on me. And we say, no, I got this to Jesus. So as we think about that, there are ways that you can engage. We'll have a couple of songs as you reflect. You can talk to the Lord right where you are in your seat. Um, I would say you could confess to one another. You could turn to a neighbor, a friend, anyone around you and say, hey, can I, can I be honest with you about some things? Um, as communion is served or there's prayer ministry, you can come and make even just a one-word confession. Uh, or if you're like me and you're like, one word? What is this one word thing? I have many words. I need at least three. You can have three. Um, speak a simple confession. Where are you tempted to think it's all on you? Name it and then receive the elements of communion as a reminder that Jesus set aside his glory and poured himself out to cleanse and make us well. And then as we come back together at the end, we'll have a chance also to continue in the way of blessing one another. So let me pray as we go into this time. Lord, we do ask that you would shine your light in the places where we're tempted to believe that it's all on us. When you come and offer yourself, your very person, we say, no. We want to be a people who are honest and say, yes, we need you. We want to receive and take the good um, medicine of confession to be well with you. So give us courage. Give us clarity. And would you wash us as we confess our sins and worship you in this time.